0: Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the, the DLC, DLC Drop, Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend Wim Stocks to the program. Wim is the former chairman of CSL, Collegiate Star League, and World Gaming Network. Has now joined Vindex and Belong Gaming Arenas as head of commercialization and partnerships. Wim, welcome to the podcast.
1: JD, honor to be here. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's it's great to to be here. Happy New Year too for to you and everybody in your in your interesting start to our year. I think everybody can agree on, can agree on that.
0: <laughs> I think we can. Yeah, it's like well, glad twenty twenty is over. What <laughs> what's going on in twenty twenty one? I hope Yeah, we what, can what just
1: happened. What just happened in twenty twenty one? Yeah, that was whole another thing. We won't we won't go down that rabbit hole. But but a, but a fascinating start to a new year.
0: It sure is. Uh, well, speaking of fascinating things, you've had a, an incredible, fascinating career. You know, I always am thankful to have the opportunity to cross your path. We've done it a few times. Stadia Ventures is where we met the first time. And you said, oh, that guy's got a name tag that says GameStop on it. We need to talk. And then ended up partnering with you in Collegiate Star League. You guys were, <laughs> were fantastic partners with us during my time at GameStop. And, and and always love seeing you at events. I always say, "Does Wim have a body double?" Because this guy is at every event, and I swear—I mean, I don't know how you have the energy, how you have the time. It's—it's it's incredible. You—you you are everywhere, my friend.
1: Well, I—you know, it's a—it kind of comes with the territory. You know, we—we we, and when had had World Gaming and and CSL. You know, for us, partnerships were were everything, as they need to be in the space, as you're aware. And and I—I uh, I thought it was our duty to show up to our partner events to 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 be good partners and to support what it was they're doing. That that could be a publisher event, that could be a tournament event, it could be a team event, that could be a sponsor event, you know, GameStop, a retailer event. So so no, it was and and that was it wasn't necessarily born out of duty that I that I did these things. I I did it out of passion. I did it out of love for for the space and and what this space is all about. So so you know you What's the phrase? You you know you if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, and right. and that's kind of kind of what I've been blessed with with having in my, in in this realm and and in my in my career. So, so but yes, but travel in er, every year prior to 2020 was was a big part of my mix and the composition of of my time. That obviously changed dramatically in 2020. Not that it's a it's a bad thing, but I'm kind of itching to get <laughs> some get some events under my belt again for. And me and you
0: go. both my friend yeah i've I feel the same way I was doing a ton of travel we ended up in a couple of the same places late 2019 early 2020 before everything shut down well let's take our audience through this amazing career of yours where did it start so I gave the intro you know where where you are now where you were most recently before that I know executive vice president of Atari is is, is way back there but Tell me where this started your love of games, that began you down this path.
1: Well, it's a it's it's a great. I don't I don't know that I can. There wasn't one you know sort of seminal moment, but but I did grow up in a household that had gaming sort of at its core, and and it's I'll give it my credit or or blame to to my father who loved pinball. Hmm. and we had pin we had two pinball machines in in our basement they were not in the in the best of shape and most of the time that they were in our household they were in some state of repair and uh, by the time I was eight years old I could take apart uh, a pinball machine and put it back together my dad we were always looking we were always looking for parts always had to go we went to bars and restaurants to find uh, old machines where we uh, all the electromagnetic uh, magnetic coils and piece sure. parts they were hard to find in, in those days and and became uh pinball became a, a big part of my life I would guess most people on your podcast probably never even played a pinball a game, a game but <laughs> but that was that was what got me going on I used to steal quarters out of my mother's knitting bag to go <laughs> to go to the bowling alley to play pinball machines and 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 but that was that was where I I saw my first video game machine. Of course, it was the Pong machines that were starting to proliferate in bars and restaurants. I I snuck into a bar not down the not far from where I grew up and I saw I said, Well, what is this? And it was the Pong machine and yeah, you know, never looked back. So that was I, I am you consider me old school. I had the pleasure I'm going to add up. This is a, a hilarious uh, story. I had the pleasure of meeting the the daughter of the guy who ran Williams. Now there are two. I'm going to take you way back. There are two premium pinball experiences. One was a Gottlieb table. One was a Williams table. Okay. Now those don't exist. Both out of Chicago. Gottlieb, I still think is the is is probably the. The creme de la creme of every any pinball game, so pure, so so astoundingly agile of a machine. The designs were sensational, and I I had the and Williams was not far behind. But I had the pleasure. I felt like I met royalty. I met the daughter of the founder of William of Williams, and she worked for three. She worked Is for right? for the Halo Studio. So cool. so she had gaming. You know, she was gaming royalty, and then she she brought it forward into her own life. So I we had. Um, most fascinating it was a big. It was a big competition uh, in the early days It was 2014, 13 was it in Vegas, and uh, we we I like I was falling over like I had seen God because <laughs> I I met this woman who, who was was affiliated with William. So that's my that's how it got started with gaming. I I was a math major in in college. In in being a math major, of course, you touched on programming. I sucked at programming, but it was enough <laughs> to get me interested in in some of the early very very rudimentary games that we would program in Fortran and and but that was enough of a bug of my, that and my pinball heritage was enough to, to propel me into into this realm and into into my career.
0: Interesting. So you so you found programming and that was related to games. So what was then your next step after college? Was that into gaming or was there a span of time where you were working to make a living before you got into the games industry?
1: Oh yeah, no, definitely, it wasn't. It wasn't an immediate connection. I I went to work for AT and T out of college, and at that time there was a, something going on where the Bell operating systems were were disconnected from AT and T. AT and T became deregulated, and as a result, again, this is going to be so foreign for most everybody who's listening to this podcast. But as a result, AT and T got into these deregulated businesses, one of which was. Computing and and computers and the Unix operating system was developed by Bell Labs. It it still is a Unix operating system. Still is is a marvel in in my estimation from from an operating system perspective. Very working in the in days when networking didn't really exist. So so but that was my that was my exposure then to computing and not long after that was introduced to a distribution company who many of the People here will remember Navar. They were starting a a computer software distribution business, and and I was I was interested in the full the full complement of what Navar was all about. It was a music distribution company. It was a software distribution company, and they took a flyer on me and said, "Come over and join our computer division." And that was when I this was this was even before CD-ROM. Mm. Uh, this is when the Sierra Online days with the Gabriel Knights and. And uh, multi, you know, you you get you go to an egghead store and you buy a prepackaged Gabriel Knight's game, and you would take out seven floppy disks and load them into your <laughs> computer, and and that was how you 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 got the game on your on your computer. This was the days of you know Apple II and and DOS and, and yeah. even even in television, you know, back back in those days, Amigas and all those kind of things. So so that was my that was my first real exposure, really on the business side from and on the distribution side but that was the bridge into publishing getting involved in the publisher that was my my entree to gt interactive if, if everybody again very formative company in the publishing realm around video games really pc games at one point in time was uh, sort of held the the at a, at a dominant share of first-person shooters this is in the doom quake duke nukem yeah uh, unreal time frame my unreal time when when epic was a tiny little company and Mark Rain and Jay Wilbur and I would get on the phone and argue about why doesn't Walmart have more of our products and why <laughs> do, why doesn't Best Buy have more of our of our products? So so it was all publishing dynamic that I got involved in in the gaming space. But that was that was the start of my career in gaming. And and it's uh, I again haven't looked haven't looked
0: well. That's really neat it's, it's it's really cool to see that to come from. The very, very grassroots—not not of esports, but of gaming. Now, okay, so you you made it in G2 Interactive uh, or GT Interactive, Atari. When? Tell me about your introduction to esports. When did that happen, and how did that happen?
1: When I after I left Atari, this was in two thousand six. I started my own company. It was called Elephant Entertainment, and we were we were all about bridging the digital experience that were experiences that were starting to proliferate. So, MMOs, uh, casual games, casual game platform for download. But we bridged in retail. We had interesting models that would enable a uh, retailer to stay involved in the life of a game after it had been purchased on a retail shelf. We did this with Best Buy, we did it with mm. Walmart, we did it with GameStop, and and we we started the program with with Target. Best Buy really had done a, a great job with it, this notion of bridging digital and retail and extending the life of a game. You know, in those days you sold a game and that was it. But here here was our proposition to how to how to to reward a retailer for m- making that initial investment in the game and then keeping them involved in the supply chain of of monetization after the fact. So this was a model we created through our, my elephant, uh, this is now mid 2008, we had a great two years of getting, getting ramped up and getting um, ready for the the big time. And 2008 came, we were, went into the marketplace, we had self-funded to get us going and we said, okay, now we need to raise some money. We started raising money in the summer of 2008. You probably know where this ends. Is in the fall, that September, is when the market crashed. Everything went to hell. Right. And what was funny is that the the money was drying up in the July August t- timeframe. We didn't know it was the, what was coming on the other end of this. It was oh, wow. already the signs were in the marketplace that the crash was coming. That the that the toxic real estate assets were all gonna gonna uh, drop the bottom out of the marketplace and. And and so come it came September when it was clear we couldn't raise money, we said okay we need to find we need to find another way to, to build and we started shopping ourselves to publishers and ultimately long story I won't give you all the gruesome details but THQ ended up buying us in two thousand eight latter part of two thousand eight I guess we I guess we I guess it was two thousand eight when that all happened and at that point THQ had no digital play they had no online play they had we we became their their nucleus for a digital strategy and for an online strategy, and after a year of doing, they bought us. Brought brought my whole team over. Really, we really honed in on this notion of MMO and helped a couple of their studios get MMO concepts up and up and running. But another, I hated it after a year. I hated it. I ended up buying <laughs> myself out of the last two years of my contract. Okay, and then I started looking around and saying, "Well, what what else is out here?" And mm. I got approached by two young guys out of Toronto who were gamers through and through before gamer, you know, being a, being a nerd wasn't as cool as it is, as, as it is now. And then right. it was then Right. These two young nerds. They would self proclaim nerds found me and said, we, you know, gaming better than, than we'll ever know gaming. We, we have what we think is an interesting proposition. Mm-hmm. And it was building a tournaments platform that enabled people to play against one another for money. And yep. that was the start of world gaming. That wow. was, and so I was super intrigued by it. I said, "You, you, I'm hooked. You know, tell me, tell me what you need, what you want. Let's let's build this thing." We ended up launching as World Gaming in 2009. But before we launched, we attracted the attention of Richard Branson. We these these two guys had both two young guys. Which I'll name them: Billy Levy and Zach Zeldin. Now I I consider my sons. They're they yeah. they they taught me. So much about. I know they taught me more than I could ever teach them. I may have taught them about the gaming business, but they taught me about how how to think differently and how how to to act differently in the context of a a, a industry that was now building and burgeoning in in really interesting ways. And and one of the things they taught me is that. And they they taught me that there are no sacred cows. You know, if you you know what you're doing and believe what you're doing, you you don't you don't have to bow to anybody. And and we had a funny. I remember a number of exchanges were out. So here we are dealing with Sony and here we are dealing with Microsoft and here we are dealing with EA
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we had a particularly, I won't, I won't name the, the company, but we had a particularly bad negotiation going on. Can I swear on this podcast? Is it okay uh, to swear?
0: We'll try not to try not to. Yeah.
1: Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> well, I won't, I'm sorry. I just wanted to, because that's part of the story and I'll, I'll soften it, but that's okay. they, they, they said, well, well, F, you know, F these guys. We we can we can persevere. You know, we we don't need them. I said, well, you know, yeah, you, we do kind of need these guys. So you can't you can't say that. But but that was their you know that was their attitude, and that was how hmm. how they approached. And and by and large, that's how this proposition came to be. And and thinking differently and thinking in a really unconventional way is how I got involved in the and sort of the ground floor of esports. We were we were. 3 years behind MLG. MLG was was around longer than that, but their their momentum was really about 2007 where mm-hmm. where we were we were 3 years after that really getting going in the 2009-2010. But in any event, so we we got the attention of Richard Branson as World Gaming, he wanted to buy the company. We wow. said well, it's not for sale. We knew we had a good proposition at that point and it was all around, you know, head-to-head gaming for money, for cash. That yeah. was and that platform that they built was that that notion? It wasn't, you know, well before it was well before the word esports even existed. We didn't even know what to call it. We called playing, you know, head-to-head matches for money and <laughs> skill-based gaming. Every it was very misunderstood in those days. Skill-based gaming still still maybe misunderstood, not as not as badly as it was in those days, but but it's perfectly legal. You know, you after there are certain laws and and legislation you have to be careful around. But we had. We had the best attorney in the world, a guy by the name of Tony, I'm going to forget Tony's last name, He big, big gambling attorney in, in, why can't I think of it, Tony Rocca, sorry, uh, Anthony Rocca. He, mm-hmm. he has a big firm in Las Vegas that, that runs a uh, big gambling practice, but also skill gates gaming is one of his, his fortes. And we hired him to prove to to EA, to the NFL, to the NBA, to to, to Take-Two, to Sony, to Microsoft, that what we were doing around head-to-head gaming, for cash, was perfectly legal. Now, you and I, John, you and I could play a FIFA match for ten dollars, perfectly legal. Yeah. But if uh, if uh, Sundance comes in and bets on our outcome, that would be that would be gambling, and that, right. and that is so now now as everyone's aware gambling is in a very different place than it used to be, and and much more accepted and much more predictable, and certainly um, going to be a huge dynamic for us going forward. But then in those days. We did a lot of work educating around competitive gaming and specifically around skill-based gaming. So long story short, as we're going into 2010, we're up to launch as World Gaming and Rich Branson hears about us. We fly to, the story is, this gentleman called us out of Toronto, his name was Andrew Black. Uh, he was running Virgin Mobile and he said, we hear what you're doing through one of our investors. We think this is super cool. Has Richard seen this? And I we said, Richard who? We said, Richard Branson. Well, said, well, no, of course not. We don't know Richard Branson. And he goes, <laughs> yeah. Richard would love this. A week later, we're sitting in Richard's office in London, talking mm-hmm. to him about, about World Gaming. And he said, I want to buy the company. So it's not for sale. And we got a lot of work to do to get it ready for launch. He said, well, then I want you to call it Virgin Gaming. I'll give you the license for free in exchange for a small world in the back end. And we said, that's interesting. Okay, you know mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Virgin a trusted brand. Virgin also, we were we were spot on for the brand, as you know. Virgin attaches itself in unconventional, unconventional in businesses, but with unconventional models. And yeah, and so we that's how we launched the company. We went to we ended up going to E three in June of two thousand and ten and launched with Virgin Gaming. We had Richard Branson standing out front of the convention center with us in our armored car, full of a million dollars fake fake million dollars, but we had million dollars yeah. there. And that was the and that. That launch day, that first opening day of E3, we had a great press person who got us on the front page of, of the Wall Street Journal saying, oh, now you can, now you can gamble playing video games. That, that hadn't been at all a dynamic. So in any event, that's what launched, uh, world gaming slash virgin gaming. We won't take you through the whole history, but after we went in the market as virgin gaming, we, we kept running into obstacles with the virgin brand. Hmm. Uh, because sponsorship started to become a big model. And uh, one of the biggest disappointments of my career, we were, we were working very closely with EA around a FIFA World Cup event that would parallel the, the real World Cup event, 2014. Yeah. And we we flushed. We had to flush about a year's worth of work down the drain when FIFA came to us and said, we just ran this tournament about a month before the World Cup started. said we, so we just ran this tournament by our sponsor partners and Emirates, who's an airline.
0: Uh, uh, and a big
1: sponsor 200 million dollar they said they they're not going to allow this and i said well we're not an airline so well virgin is right. and your brand is virgin so that was the start of many other brand conflicts funny how that mm, uh, one interesting one of those things where you hear a word you've never heard a word before and then you start hearing it all over the place yeah the same thing was happening this we got denied on this on this big promotion and then we started Running into it with telephone, cell and mobile company disconnects and, and conflicts. We ran into it with hospitality. We ran into a number of different places. We ended up having in 2014 give the license back to Virgin, went back in the marketplaces World Gaming. And that was the that was sort of the modern era of world gaming. In 2015, we bought CSL and put it pushed them all together. And we were purchased by Cineplex. We were invested in Cineplex in 2015. Ended up buying us all in two thousand and seventeen. In G- June of this past year, CSL and World Gaming were purchased by a private equity company that it's now known, re- referred to as PlayFly. Yep. And and about college esports at this point in time, I left to join Vindex in in December. Yes. And um, th- thrilled to, thrilled to be here. So that's... that that's that that is my chronicle in a in a compressed compressed description
0: yeah that's your story and you're you're sticking to it that's so cool you know what i take away right damn right (laughs) what i take away from that is you've you've always been on the edge the the forefront of of what's happening in the space which i think is super cool and i know you're at the forefront yet again and i want to talk about that in just a minute take me through that experience with richard branson so you're in london right? So you got called into his office. What was that experience like? What were you feeling that negotiation? You know, a lot of times these people who are pillars of industry, they just have such an advantage because they're so intimidating. Uh, You feel like you can't say no to them. Maybe that was your perspective. Maybe it wasn't. Just take me through how that whole experience felt emotionally to you and your team. Well, it was
1: funny, John. It's actually a really good question because uh, I have to, I'm I'm transporting myself back there now to try and come up with how I felt, and and, and it was there certainly was an awe awe inspiring moment to be sitting with Richard Branson and built, you know built this empire and built it in such a cool, very you know did it his own way. Just always a bit admirer of of someone like that, and and yeah. at the same time, what I remember thinking was that here are these two young guys that you know, they were still they were still in their early twenties, and. It was like they were having a conversation with uh, a friend of theirs. You know, wow. they they weren't intimidated one bit, and it was there, you know back to what I said earlier is that they were so confident. What they had was 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 stellar. They were confident that they knew their subject matter in such a in such a good way and such an unusual way. But but they also were part of the gaming community and mm. the, the notion of of as players. I I was on. I was part of the gaming community. On the business side, they were community, part of the community as players, and and the fact that they they recognize the value of that, they recognize the power of it. I just give them so much credit for being so so. They were, they were both very entrepreneurial, still are for that matter. But I but I I remember being more in awe of that than I was of in awe of sitting um, in the same room with uh, Richard Branson. Interesting. So uh, so that was a cool. That was really a cool moment. And I and like I said. To you, I they, they at that moment I thought these these kids are going to teach me more about the world than I'll ever be able to teach them.
0: Yeah, well, I give you a lot of credit for that perspective. You know, I always I, I talk to a lot of people who are outside of the the gaming and the esports space, whether they're they're CMOS for brands or they're, they're heads of agencies and things of this nature, and I I tell people a lot of the time. It's not so hard to figure this out. What you need to do is find a really sharp college kid. And I have some relationships like this. Find a sharp college kid who's a gamer, who's into esports. They don't even know how much they know because it's just them. It's their life experience. Sit them down with an open mind and say, Hey, tell me what you love. Tell me what sucks. Tell me what you wish you could do. And in turn... I'm going to mentor you and offer you some of my business experience and my life experience. I think very few people, unfortunately, have the the mentality, especially older experienced professionals, to look at younger people and say, let me learn from you.
1: You know, I, I do think, and and we're, you, you and I are very close to to what this community is, what you know, gaming is all about from a player perspective, as as well as the business side, but the player perspective. And, yeah. and I think the the what 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 this this group, you know, often, you know, millennials, Gen Z now, Alphas as well, they they all think this way. You know, they all are are know that that conventional thinking can only steer them in a in a wrong direction or or a, a boring direction, or certainly in a in a not maybe maybe better said in inter- a disintermediated direction that and they all know themselves so well. I I'm just I'm so in awe of how smart that 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 demographic is about themselves and that's yeah a good point and you know, knowing what they know and believing what they know is su- is su- such power and such value mm. and that's what these these two guys had. I'd never experienced it uh, firsthand and and to this day I you know I I I, I credit them with. With sort of turning my head around about what what gaming is and and why it's so important and why it's so distinctive and and to this day it's 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 enabled me and 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 allow, allowed me to continue in this business and and I I I'll say in a in a very authentic way.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Now, as what I'd love to pivot to here, you know, you and I met each other through partnership opportunities, and we both have partnership backgrounds. You have a little more experience than me, I think. And so uh, just a few more years.
1: You're talking about the gray hair? You're talking about the gray hair, aren't you? That's okay. You can say it, John. That's okay.
0: Hey, I I wear a hat for a reason. So what I'd love to learn from you and for our audience to learn from you, you you mentioned at the beginning of this episode about it's important to take time to be with your partners, to be at their events, to show appreciation, to show support. Tell me in your mind and your experience, what makes a great partner?
1: Well I I think it's I I look at it pretty simplistically and and there's obviously nuances and nuanced dynamics around it but but a great partner and it's not it's not just it's not a one way thing it's really a two way thing being a good partner I think is is providing a value both ways and 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 it's not it's not it's something that needs to be understood right from the right from the go and and right from right, right from the start that that we're in this relationship because a I have value that I can bring you, and you have value that you can that, that you'll bring me, and and there's a respect, there's a there's an admiration, there's a there's a you know an a ownership there that that I I I think is the is the power of a of a really good partnership. Not as you know, not every good partnership is uh, not every partnership is a good partnership. In fact, if yeah if there's if one has more power over the other. That's not a good partnership. That's you know you end up at the end of the day you end up scratching your head going why did I do this deal you know yeah. why 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 I'm in this this is this is more work or more pain than than it's worth and so it, it and and part of that I've learned didn't 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 know this and in as this all started but but the, you know the you you learn that you have to go into to a, a partnership if you want it to be a good partnership and you're not you're in it for the long term and not just some short term game. Yeah. You have to go in with that expectation and set that expectation up front. That and that—that's you know that some people are will will agonize over partnership, and that probably is the better way than to jump in, you know, quickly and a partnership thinking, oh, this on the surface this makes all the sense in the world, but but that setting that expectation about the mutual value and the and the and the power of of delivering mutual value over a sustained amount of time—that's what that would that's what to me makes a good partnership. And and again, I I very simplistic in my thinking about what that what that is and, and how it how it prov- provides value but to me that's i've always conducted myself in in that in that way partnerships to me are also fun they're they yeah. can be exciting I, I i personally love you know as much as i want to derive value from a partnership for whatever my particular endeavor is i love the fact that that the partnership we've garnered is delivering for them yes. and that's that i think if you can have that two way you're, you're. That's the most, the most powerful thing. But for me, when I, when I see that an event of ours, you know, Call of Duty event had, we had one of the biggest Call of Duty events in, in, in North America three years ago. This was through World Gaming. Yeah. And I was so thrilled that I could say to, to, to Activision and the Call of Duty team, I said, we had, we had, we had twenty one hundred teams participate in this, <laughs> in this Call of Duty event. It was, it was all, you know, online that, that, that a live event. Yeah, and they were blown away. They say well, you had what you had. So it's that incredible. to me, the the fact that we could deliver for them in that regard to me, that that that's what floats what, my boat. Gets me gets me truly excited.
0: I love that perspective. Yeah, I th- I think number one, you know, life is about expectations, right? So even beyond business, expectations are everything, and to s- set those properly is setting yourself up for success. The other thing I'd add that that I've recognized, and you made a great uh, point to it, is. I feel like when you're in a, a role of partnerships, you're almost playing for the partner. You're on the partner side more than no, even your own company. You're like, you're saying, hey, let me help you understand what we do here, help you understand how to get the most value out of it and introduce you to the team and and make sure that you're accomplishing your KPIs. And if you're doing that for each other, like a personal relationship, rather than just one person taking all, or just being guarded, and you know, uh, making sure that you're taken care of. If if you're both, I guess, looking at the the partner first, you're going to be taken care of. Has that been your experience? I,
1: I i believe I believe that, John. i i think I think you you've described it perfectly. And yeah, you, you there, there's a there's a real balance there, and and that balance you have to take really good care of, and 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 respect and. And, but, but also, you know, partnerships can get off the rails. you got to, you got to know when to also say, Hey, wait a minute, this isn't working. This is, we, we, we need a course correct here. We need to get back on the rails. And, and I can think of a number of circumstances where that, you know, you get it back on the rails, but sometimes you don't. And, and that's, that's, that's okay. You know, that's okay. It's, it's the there's, there's world is huge amount of the great news is there's so many opportunities for partnerships but but that that is that is i i think the the this two-way street the two the mutual value is so important and and with with as i was describing my the the joy i have in a partnership is is if if that exists on the other side man you, you just there's nothing's going to beat that that's just the the ultimate sort of a relationship and and value that you're going to be able to derive
0: Absolutely. Well, let's let's jump ahead to your current initiative. You've just joined Vindex and Belong Gaming Arenas. When I was at GameStop, one of the things I was tasked with at one time was researching this concept. Uh, GameStop's been looking into a, a similar concept. And there, there's all these mom and pop, you know, barcades, if you will, you know, entertainment, gaming venues all over the United States. And then I looked across the pond. And I looked at Belong, which is owned by Game in the UK, and my goodness, I, I, I couldn't believe how well they were doing it. And so obviously uh, Sundance, Mike Sepso have raised a lot of money. They've brought Belong over to the US, and I'm excited to see what they're going to do. I've, I've had the opportunity to to talk with Martin and have a number of talks with Sundance and kind of see behind the scenes a little bit. You're a big Believer in the localization of esports. Tell me a little bit more about that and why you see that as the future.
1: Well, the the, the great thing about and you, you know, John, you you nailed it. The notion of of you know, our arena. We'll call we we. They're not stores. They're not you know. They're not venues. There really are arenas. They're they're small arenas. They're you know, six thousand to to eight thousand square feet. You know, seventy two to one hundred twenty stations for play that you know that it wasn't an overnight success but they the the belong team coming out of game the retailer there knew they had to do something different this couldn't be a bolt-on to retail it really had to be a completely complete reinvention rethink of what that space and what the experience is all about so yeah so over the course of the last two two and a half years they re-owned really and refined what that experience is. It really is the notion of the experience first, the participation, experience around the participation first. Retail really a, a secondary side of this. So yes, there's a retail component to it, a resale sure. component to it, but but it's in complete harmony with the the participation side, the the equipment that's portrayed. These this is premium experience. This is you know top level equipment. PCs are. Are state of the art, top notch, high performance. The overall brand experience is is very premium. the 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 interactions of programming very very high end, but it's all but all driven to be hyper local. and And you think about esports. How did esports get built? It really got built in the macro. And mm-hmm. you know, you think about where esports got built. You you you'd be, if you were a pro team before the franchise model, you'd you'd get on a plane to go to Katowice to participate in a. Big ESL Counter Strike tournament. You'd fly to you'd fly to uh, Los Angeles to compete in another ESL or a, the New York ESL one. These these were nomadic activations, and they were all really driven around global in- engagement. But what was missing yeah. was the the sort of the the local, the regional pieces of this. And once the franchise models took hold, and and I'm a, a big I know some people don't believe in in the franchise model or or think it's it doesn't mean it's meaningless. I think it's meaningful, and I Hmm. and I'll I'll harken back. This is one of the one of the things that that the franchise model does really well is that takes advantage of a local market, a local franchise. You think of you know think of the we talked jokingly about the Minnesota Vikings. That's that's a very local activation. That's a very regional sort of activation. Minnesota, Iowa, not Wisconsin because Green is there, and that was missing. That was missing in 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 esports, and then and then. You take you take on. I'll hear from our perspective. We think about college. You know, college. You think about college football. You know, who cares about Alabama football? Well, the nation does kind of because they're the best. But sure. but it's it's one of the most engaged fan bases you can have in the state of Alabama around Alabama football that didn't exist in 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 uh, esports overall. The franchise right. model helped, but in college now, as these colleges build esports programs, they're also now a a hub. For a very localized, very regionalized engagement, not only from from the players but also fans who who they like, they, they're Harrisburg alumni or live in the Harrisburg area, or they're at UC Irvine or or Robert Morris in Chicago. Those now are fan bases for those colleges in the esports realm as well. So yeah. seeing all that and 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 seeing all this and experiencing this from from CSL, it it, it just again over the course of the last year and a half as a man there. We're, this space is missing an opportunity with the local building local fan bases building local activations building local affinities is the next wave and it was in my in, in my estimation and then you know sure enough Mike and Sundance are well in front of me and and uh, they they strike they set up Vindex. first thing they do well after after they body sports engine the first thing they do is buy belong because that's exactly what belong is doing it's taking a a a venue an arena becoming a hub for a community in a city mm-hmm. and building on that on that activation building on that base and and what they've done in the UK is is rather brilliant where each one of these arenas has its own identity it's, it has a team name the the Manchester Swarm
0: yeah and the branding um, is amazing to too on this uh, really br- impressive
1: br- uh, Brandy, think of think of ma- minor league baseball in the US you know the thinking the fun creative approaches to minor league baseball teams in the US yeah. That's what what that they did for these community hubs in in the UK and 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 then and then building uh, this is this is of course this is amateur. They have built all the programming around getting getting players to come in and and participate. The, the stations they they sell memberships. They 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 sell hourly usage for for the stations as well. But the notion of building building that hub around the local ac- uh, activation is really cool. So. The Manchester Swarm, that's the, it's the Manchester Belong arena. They sell merchandise. They, they yeah. have a Call of Duty team. They have a Riot. They have a League of Legends team. They have a Rocket League team all falling in under that Manchester Swarm namesake and, and branding. So all of a sudden there's a community. Now there's a community identity for, for that, for those teams and for those players that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And, and then right. think about taking that, those hubs and then networking them all together. That's what yeah. belong is. That's what, so you, you're in, you're in Manchester, you play a belong venue in, I, I can't name names yet, but Liverpool uh, or whatever. New York Because yeah. We did announce, we, well, we did announce a partnership with Anbox. So, so, and so New York is, is definitely one of the, the uh, arena locations. And the, you take that hyper localized presence and build, build up the community around it. And then you put it into the, to the, to the realm and the dynamic around a networked opportunity to, to, to be together and, And there has been, there was some public information shared that there'll be over 500 locations in the United States the next four years, another thousand globally. So big footprint that will be built. And at at this point, well capitalized, there's a digital play that will accompany this. So to me, to me, it's the the next wave of of esports. It's the next wave. Now we've got it built in the macro. We've got the franchises sort of at the pro level. Now the next thing is the franchises at the amateur level. And that's what, that's what Belong represents too. to me. And I think as we, we tell the story, publishers see the value of it, the platforms see the value of it, the brands are seeing the value of it, and, and I'm excited to, to get this rollout underway.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see it too. You know, one of the things that was a big unlock for me, I'm a big believer in in the localization as well. I worked with a lot of the local Overwatch League teams when I was at GameStop, and I saw a lot of the benefits. Not a lot of people do realize, as you uh, state very clearly and very well, is that Esports has grown the opposite way of traditional sports. Rather than growing from local to global, it's gone global and now it's coming down to the local level. A moment that was a big unlock for me from a sponsor standpoint was uh, a couple of years ago, HEB, which is a grocery store in Houston. It's a beloved grocery store. I'd never heard of it before. I live in Dallas, but Houston's a little further away. They announced a sponsorship with the Houston Outlaws, the local Overwatch League team. I thought they were going to get crushed on social media when I heard about it because I didn't know anything about H-E-B. Turns out everybody loves that grocery store, and so they were applauded and everybody loved it. But the main point here is that if it wasn't for localized franchise esports, H-E-B doesn't have a play in esports because they're a local company. They don't have a global footprint. And so now with this localization, you're giving smaller and more local companies an opportunity to engage young people through esports. And then furthermore, as high school esports becomes a bigger thing, a lot of these high schools don't have places to compete. So you're providing places for these kids to compete. You're providing healthy ways for brands to reach them, I love when you're able to build out those positive aspects of, you know, how it works into education and developing opportunities and skills for the future. So, man, it's really impressive to watch. And I I feel fortunate to be as close to you and Sundance and these other people who are involved.
1: You you nailed it again, JD. The, you know, I, I was speaking from the player's perspective about the importance of, of building affinity for localized presence and engagement for eastport and, and branding and and you know the, the the sort of the community but but you're you're so right the monetization piece that unlocks a whole nother level of monetization I think about you know the Minnesota rocker in in Minneapolis so uh, called yeah. there's a potato chip brand there old Dutch if you ever been to Minneapolis they actually they are great chips and and but they would they're they're very regional they, they would have no ability monet, mo- monetizably or or just from a brand perspective to do anything on a on a much larger scale. Yet now they have that opportunity, and and I I actually I went to the first of the Houston Outlaws homestand in February. I guess the only one they had because of the pandemic happened just right ever yeah right, right after. And Lori Lori Burgess, who's the runner, she runs a team for Beely. She's gotten to be really a good friend of mine, and she introduced me to the HEB people. They they had their heads on so right about what what a, a sponsorship meant to them. In Houston, and they did mm. so not only did they have the opportunity, but they also did it right. And yeah, and you got to give the Outlaws a lot of credit for that. They they what they steered HEB. First of all, attracted them to it, but then secondly, steered them in the right way to light up a sponsorship for the team. What they did, Lori is a phenomenal mind around content. They 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 built content for them, yeah. integrated them in a very authentic way, and. And I, th- I think a lot of people thought, oh, HUB is gonna get their hats handed to them. And they and they did just the opposite. They did um, an amazing activation. And and so so that you're you're so right about that, that's not just from a player perspective where there's value. There's a ton of value for local sponsors, local businesses that, that want to affiliate. And and as you know, you know, this is common thinking now that there's there's with, with millennials and gen Zs, there's just no better way to reach them than there is through gaming and eSports.
0: Absolutely. And when you go back to the player version of this, currently there's no clear path to pro for amateurs, right? Like for for kids to get there. I think that's going to be built out very quickly. And uh, especially as we're seeing high schools and now junior highs have teams and stuff. But where do you go to compete? Where do you go to train? Where do you go to be discovered? I, yep. I don't know what the plans are but i could very easily see that your local belong gaming arena is the place where that's being facilitated
1: well I, and you're 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 so right about that and and the other the other great thing that we have underway as i mentioned we we are building partnerships with a lot of these pro teams because they're they're seeing how tough it is to build a fan base yeah so they're seeing how it is to keep not only to get get them into the fan funnel but then to keep them around and and yeah. belong offers them that connection with an amateur base that's hyper local that has affinity for a dallas team or a houston team or a la team or a new york team and and so but but what's great about that it's to talk about a, a great partnership for those, those proteins for belong community members are the aspiration they're the inspiration man i want to be i just want to be i want to be like jonik on on, on Excelsior, I want to yeah. I want to play Overwatch just like he does, and and so they're they're the pull, you know, the pro players are the pull, and the, the funnel for those players is represented by Belong. So no, you're you're that's that's the dynamic, and that's we're super excited about the premise and and what this is going to mean for for building and taking esports to the to the next level.
0: That's incredible. Well, we're nearing the end of this episode. And I want to thank you for going over your career and sharing some of these deep insights with us when it comes to uh, these experiences with Richard Branson, how you came along with the CSL and and World Gaming Network and where you are today. Is there anything that you want to tease, share, get our audience to get behind? Now would be a perfect time to do so.
1: Uh, we i think we hit on we hit on uh, a number of uh, great things i uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just fit, i'll just close by saying uh, i've been so uh, fortunate to to be part of this 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 realm you know i i don't think i think if any any of us from from the the original days of gaming i don't think any of us saw i i like I'll, let me just state it for myself i never saw gaming becoming this big this this large this engaged yeah. It's important, and to be to have been, been able to stay part of it and to stay vital and and part of it is just the biggest just the biggest blessing anyone could hope for. So so I and met so many great people and smart people and and people who think unconventionally and differently. That's taught me so much in this in this realm and 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 gaming. It's at the heart of it. Is is probably one of the the strongest communities of of minds and and players and and people that I I could ever want to be part of. So, so that I I'll leave with that. And, and I just tell everybody to keep an eye out for there's a belong coming to your community. Keep an eye out for it. We'll we won't be shy about talking about them when they're ready, when we're ready to go. And, and uh, John, I appreciate you. You giving me time to, to, to blather on about all this stuff.
0: No, it's my pleasure. I, I always enjoy the opportunities we get to talk and, you know, you've been in this space for so long and what it requires is somebody who really cares about the industry and adds value, and that's something that you've done for a very long time, and I've been one of the benefactors of that as well. So I, I want to thank you personally for the times we've been able to spend together as well.
1: well. Well, John, it's been great to to get to know you. You, we started with the GameStop sponsorship, and see, this is a partnership, right? This is a mu- mutual value that will 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 propel us for a long time. So I, I, it's been great to. No, thank you for believing in us at GameStop and, and we're, we're going we're to keep it going
0: Absolutely, well thank you again Wimstocks, this is the DLC Drop Podcast, thank you for joining us, we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review